Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-hosts, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, and community organizer and socialist Kenny Cepeda. We are online at what-s-left.webnow.com. Um, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. Thank you. Today we are joined uh, with Jessica, or Dr. Jessica. <laughs> Jessica, who teaches English literature, writing, and environmental humanities at the university level in Washington State. Uh, she has been teaching college students for eight years and holds a PhD in English. She is also an active member of environmental and animal rights activist communities. Uh, we are going to be having a lively discussion with her, and we look forward to it. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Eduardo. It's great to be here. Uh, before that, though, uh, Andy, if you could just give, uh, read out or say, reach out to our audience because of a letter yeah. you have. Yeah, so we're still um, reaching out to anyone. Um, we'd like to do an episode in the future on folks talking about their experiences with the COVID vaccine, um, particularly if you've experienced an adverse effect from it and are open to talking about it online please reach us at the uh, contact information in the description below uh, go through our web node form. Um, so let us know if you'd be open to discussing that in some future episode. And also I do wanna thank Jessica for, for coming here. Um, we, I think she, we found out about you, Jessica, from an, we, you had heard one of our episodes about education and, and we've mostly focused here on K through 12 education, uh, elementary school or middle school or high school. And we really haven't talked about higher ed. And, and I found out that you were uh, uh, in higher education, actually a teacher in higher education. And I thought that would be a great opportunity to really talk about what your experience um, has been like this year and in previous years, because in, in many ways, that's a, that's a gap. We haven't really talked about that area. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk about what was this last year like and what's happening in higher education, because there's, there's changes happening in public education at the K through 12 but I think there's also changes happening in higher education as well. So we, I really thank you for taking this opportunity to talk about it because I think it's important. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, it's great to be here. And uh, I'm so grateful for all of you because it's just, um, it's, yeah, thank, thank God for you all. And uh, happy to be uh, in connection, even if it's, uh, you know, through Zoom uh, in connection <laughs> with some other, some fellow teachers in solidarity. Yeah, so let's start maybe with uh, some basic information, um, if you could just share with us your background in education or how you got into teaching, uh, your experience in general. Sure, so I've been teaching a college age students for about eight years. I majored in English in, in my undergrad and I thought originally I wanted to work in editing and publishing in that kind of arena. But after a couple of years working and publishing after undergrad, I decided I wanted to go to grad school to work uh, on my creative writing to kind of have like space and time to do that. And so I originally started teaching as a way to fund uh, that MFA degree. And I pretty much immediately fell in love with teaching and, and haven't looked back since. And so after my master's, I stayed on to do a PhD in English in order to become a college professor. And I, I've taught 
college classes over the past eight years in everything from literature, composition and rhetoric, creative writing, um, interdisciplinary writing. And, and in the past couple of years, like you mentioned, Eduardo, in your intro, the past couple of years, I've been uh, largely focused on environmental humanities. So for those that maybe aren't familiar with that term, essentially environmental humanities is studying environmental issues through the frame of language and rhetoric and narrative and, and literature storytelling. And yeah, I mean, uh, the, the past, the past like five years, especially, I think I've really witnessed a, a big change, a lot of changes in, in higher education and it's all kind of coming to a head the past year, of course, during the COVID era. But to me, just, just being in this space um, over the past yeah, eight years, academia is, it's pretty much unrecognizable from even just a few years back. So clearly you got really inspired about teaching. Can you say what it was that you really liked about it? You know, and what, what got you so excited about doing it? Because um, everyone talks about how hard it is. Um, and then maybe talk about some of those changes that you've seen. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely fell in love with teaching from really the beginning. I, I, I you know, you're, you're an English major. Everyone asks you like, oh, so you want to teach? And I was always like, no, 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 no. Um, in part because I didn't know if I'd be good at it. But once I entered the classroom, yeah, you just start forming these relationships, as, as all three of you know, with students. And I found, you know, it's, it's a space where you really, especially in the humanities, you really get to foster critical thinking and creativity. And especially if you're, you know, lucky enough to have relatively small class sizes, which I, I have um, certainly in comparison to a lot of my colleagues in the sciences. Um, it's a, it's a really, it can be a really radical space and a transformative um, point in especially like college age when I think back to my own experiences, like that was a really pivotal time and to have good teachers, supportive teachers, um, it's, it's incredibly rewarding. So I, yeah, I love it. I don't want to leave. <laughs> and, and you said though that th things, you've seen some changes in the, not just this last year, but in the years coming up to the year where COVID hit, hit education? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the efforts, especially corporate efforts to kind of infiltrate, privatize, as I know you guys talk about on here and just, you know, kind of control the public university and public education at large. Um, you know, that's really laid the foundation over years, decades really, um, for what's happened the past year, year and a half. and. I found it really difficult the past few years. It seems kind of like the parameters of any given discussion or critique are increasingly controlled by, by establishment powers. And that to me, I mean, that runs totally counter to what the Academy is supposed to be or what I kind of thought it was when I came in and was like, yeah, I, I love to read. I love to write. I, um, I, I want to foster these uh, critical thinking skills and creativity in my students. And, you know, the principle of academic freedom, right? Like the idea that this is a space where you can have open debate, you can have, you know, radical ideas and you, you can express dissent and that it's not only accepted, but that it's actually encouraged. And I am finding that's just not the case anymore. Like if it, if it ever was. 
I mean, I, I, I'm just curious, you know, um, at least from my point of view, it's pretty clear that, um, you know, in certain uh, fields like science and, um, you know, at the university level, uh, these corporate ties and corporate uh, interests have hijacked knowledge, you know, creation and, and you know, to use it to, for their own ends. Um, and so I'm just curious, like in your particular field, you know, how, if you've seen that same thing, you know, in how that plays out, you know, how you mentioned language, you mentioned rhetoric, narratives, and how, how do you see that happening in, in, in academia, particularly um, in your field? I mean, I think one of the differences between K through 12 and higher education to some extent in that regard is that you have most teachers who, you know, are, are in higher ed, they're simultaneously trying to do their own research, um, myself included, right? And we're all so specialized that I think that is one aspect of it that kind of creates this frame of mind where people, you know, we're, you know, we're all super smart and, and we're hardworking and we're doing all this research. But I think that like super specialization is one aspect that kind of makes a lot of us unable to question the larger structures. And certainly like it, it's hard to push back uh, through your work. And that's a, I mean, that's a problem, right? Like it makes you feel really like experty uh, for lack of a better word, but I think it, you know, it, yeah, you get to be kind of like the king or queen of your little corner of academia in some respect, but ultimately it's pretty disempowering in the material world, right? And then you pair that with, like you mentioned, Kenny, you know, the fact that broadly speaking, the universities are, I mean, they're in bed with Silicon Valley, they're in bed with the foundations, with hedge funds, with big pharma, like you name it, like this is, it's part of a larger structure, right, where you have these institutions that are they're serving and perpetuating the ruling class, even if we maybe don't like to admit it. Do you talk a little bit about your either relationship with your colleagues, either through a union, political kind of stuff? I definitely, I've never really thought about that, but it's interesting how you can essentially be, like you talked about, you can kind of almost be, become isolated in your expertise. Um, so is there a ch are there opportunities to talk with other colleagues about these changes or organize in any way? Can you speak about that? Yeah, so I am, I have been since I entered higher education, I have been a, an active member of my union. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very pro-union, um, always have been. And there are spaces to some extent, I think, to have these discussions. But one of the frustrations that I've had with my union over the past few years is that I, I, I feel that increasingly the the sort of identity politics social just, justice rhetoric um to which i'm pretty empathetic um to some extent but i do think it oftentimes kind of overshadows this critique or any critique of the broader structure it obscures the class analysis of course as i know you guys talk about on here and for example, I mean, we, we, the last cycle of bargaining that we did, um, we were able to organize a one day strike, but it took, I mean, that took everything and then we couldn't get enough uh, support, couldn't get enough mobilization to extend it. And I think that was three years ago. And then we just renegotiated our bargain um, this past spring during 
during COVID. So it was all remote. And I think we're just seeing like increasingly the, you know, the unions have just lost so much power. And then what little power we do have, we just seem like we're unwilling to, to leverage it in a way that would actually translate to material change, you know, things like wages, things like healthcare, right? Um, as much as I, I do think the sort of, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, which has become um, so ostensible in higher education and, and just kind of broadly speaking, um, as important as that stuff is, like, you know, another diversity training is not going to allow anybody, let alone like minority workers and minority students to pay their rent. Like, so yeah, I, I've grown, I've grown pretty frustrated with the spaces that are available. Um, and then of course, during COVID, there are no conversations like that uh, because there's no, there's nowhere to have them. No one's meeting in person and you don't have these, you know, hallway interactions or, before a meeting, after a meeting, right? Everything is sort of catered and um, that's that's all we got. Could you talk about, Jessica, the, the what's happened with in terms of online education? Has that changed over the years um, in the time that you've been there? Because I think that that is gonna become an issue that I think we're gonna be talking about. So I, I'd like to know if, if you've seen that change at all over the last eight, uh, five, eight, eight years. It's a good question. I don't, I don't know that I'm the best person to answer just because I, I never taught online. I never taught any classes online prior to spring of 2020. I certainly, you know, experienced sort of secondhand, you know, pressure to increasingly use more technology in the, in the classroom. You know, we have an LMS, uh, you know, one of the learning platforms that we use at my institution, but yeah, I mean, I was kind of in my department, actually, I don't know how many um, teachers there are total, but I was one of the few people who was really pretty like old school, despite being a pretty young teacher. Uh, I was doing almost everything on paper, like students would print out their papers to turn them in. We would do, you know, if there was an end of quarter portfolio, almost everybody else was doing online portfolios. I would have my students bring in the stack, right, all their revisions and their drafts and write a cover letter. That was really important to me um, and it's grown increasingly so in the past year. But um, I was kind of, yeah, a little bit of a lone wolf in that respect. I would throw my syllabus up onto Canvas. But other than that, um, I was kind of able to skirt around it to some extent. And I think maybe this is this, you know, where we transition into, um, asking you about your experience last year with you know the pandemic and uh, distance learning slash teaching. Um, how, how was that experience for you, um, you know, over the last year? It, it was catastrophic, honestly. I, it, was, it was really bad. I mean, obviously there were a lot of problems in public education before, some of which I was aware of, some of which I was aware of, but maybe not aware of the scope, but I mean, this was, I've never seen anything like this unfold uh, before in my life. And so Mar end of March, 2020, I was asked, well, I was told to switch my spring class to be remote. And I, so we we're on quarters at my institution as opposed to semesters. So it was kind of like, 
right before spring break when everything kind of kicked off. And I think I had maybe two weeks of lead up um, from the time the official call was made and they were like, you have to teach remotely. Um, so it was crazy. And, and it's been fully remote ever since I, so yeah, over a year now. And I think I've taught maybe like nine or 10, like close to a dozen online classes since March of 2020, exclusively through Zoom slash uh, Canvas, which is our, our um, online digital platform at my school. And I, I mean, I've been doing my best and I, I have the luxury, I suppose, of having smaller classes. Like I typically have, depending on the class, but around 20, 25 students. Um, so I'm able to make some connections, some sort of, you know, do the synchronous Zoom sessions. Um, but it's, it's not an education in my mind. It's just not, I think, um, last year. So one of my classes for summer of 2020 was a class on public activism. And it was supposed to be super community engaged. I had proposed it like a year ahead and I had, you know, all these great plans to, to make, you know, get the students like break down the four walls of the classroom, get them out in the community off campus. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you guys tell me like, how, how do you teach a public activism course through Zoom? It's a joke. And I mean, thing, like I've been, I've been really frustrated too, um, just with the administration and even sort of the upper department uh, people at my school, like constantly being told, you know, oh my God, you're so you're so creative, you're so uh, resilient. You teachers are amazing. Um, you're do, you know you're adapting to these crazy circumstances, and like it's constant language like that coming from admin um and even even from people outside the academy from friends and acquaintances and I, it's like everyone acknowledging that this situation is terrible for terrible for teachers it's terrible for students but no one wants to do anything to stop it and you know to say like oh like hey our students are clearly suffering maybe this isn't the greatest path forward yeah, like, yeah, it's great. They're super resilient, but that's, I mean, that's a pretty poor excuse for what I see as heavily manufactured circumstances that kind of necessitate that resilience, which is now like chronic resilience, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I have seen among my students, this is totally anecdotal, but I have seen an, a significant uptick in learning disabilities, mental health diagnoses, like ADHD, uh, bipolar disorder, tons of anxiety and depression. And that was something that I, I was very aware of in past years. It's a massive, you know, massive mental health crisis, especially on college campuses. Uh, but it's, it's so much worse now. And I know the percentage of those sorts of cases that um, I, I am, you know, informed of either directly from my students or from like our disability services office, I know those are such a small fraction of what's really going on. And so it's really, it's really difficult to hear that, that kind of like, again, like, yeah, calls for more support, more mental health support, um, but never any questioning of the policies and the conditions that are causing the problems in the first place. Do you have a sense if um, 
this will continue, you know, online learning, uh, this technology will be embedded in some form, at least partially in your, you know, process of teaching? I mean, every sign points to yes, I think at least in some capacity. I So my institution is has said supposedly that they are, you know, pandemic pending going back to in-person fully in the fall. Um, so we're talking a year and a half after um, pretty much everything has been online completely. But already, yeah, like there's the language of, oh, what tools do we want to bring with us? Like, mm -hmm. like how can we uh, incorporate some of these skills and online digital, whether it's like platforms or just approaches to teaching. And I mean, interestingly, at my school, we recently had a student government put forth a measure for the fall. Um, so when we're supposed to be back in, in person completely, they put forth a measure um, to essentially require that all classes uh, that are in any way lecture-based be recorded and that there be asynchronous options uh, for any student who wants them and that there be uh, questions added, for example, to teacher evaluations uh, to make sure that they're falling in line with that policy. Um, so that, I mean, that's just a small example and I don't believe it's passed. I don't believe that's gonna be implemented at this point in the short term, but I think it's really scary that it's not only coming down from the top, like it's one thing coming from administration or coming through, you know, like state or federal, like public health frameworks, but to actually have the students themselves asking for that to me is, is quite disturbing. And I think it's, you know, it gives you a little bit of a window into what we're up against here. I, I have talked with some of the students who graduated from Mission who are in college right now and who went all online. And the one thing they say that they kind of like is they feel like they got their time back. Like they feel like they can control their time a little bit more by that online experience. I let them know there's a trap here in the, you know, being built, constructed because, and when, once the, the, the trap is being opened, but once it's sprung, your time is not going to be your own. It's going to be gig economy and all remote work and blah, blah, blah. But that's it for the future. Right now, students do seem to experience it as I can be more flexible with my time because I can just take, you know, your, my, my English professor's cl uh, class and I can watch it some other way, you know, at, at my leisure. Um, so that's my, that's my suspicion about why that might be coming. Um, again, it's, it's not some misunderstanding, I think, from students about what's really, in my opinion, what's really coming. Well, I think it's understandable. I mean, I, I have a ton of empathy for my students in terms of the conditions that they were being subjected to before COVID. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, like, who wants to commute? Who wants to, you know, especially for the larger lecture courses, like, who wants to go all the way to campus uh, and sit in a room of sometimes like 1200 people when you can just watch that lecture at home, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's misinformed or it's, I think there's just a, you know, an, an understanding of the implications of these sorts of what's framed as like accessibility options, right? Or it's framed as, um, it's framed always through the language of equity. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I'm not 
I'm not going to say like, no, there should never be any technology in a classroom ever under any circumstances. Of course not. Like it's not black and white, but I think it just seems to me that my colleagues, especially, which is, I mean, that's what really frustrates me is that I, you know, we're supposed to be advocates for our students and yeah, I want, I want them to have time. I absolutely want them to have time. And if it were up to me, you know, I would, I would throw out a lot of the conditions. I mean, I'd throw out the whole grading system, for example, right? And I think that's something that's come up during COVID is like my, my department's been very like encouraging of like, yeah, just, you know, go easy on everybody and be flexible and give extensions. And, you know, that's like an example of like, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, that's, um, it's super inequitable and it's, uh, it's a terrible, terrible way to sort of uh, frame education in my opinion. But this larger understanding of like, well, what are the implications of these digital platforms? Where is your data going? I mean, that's something that is just completely overlooked. I mean, no, nobody's having conversations about what it means for students to submit. In my classes, what, you know, really, really personal content, potentially, you know, these are writing classes to submit that to a, a corporate platform. Uh, what does that mean? What are the implications? What are the risks? What are the moral questions around that? You know, even if you just want to talk about it hypothetically, like those conversations aren't happening. At some point, as you're experiencing all of this, you, I know for, for us, we've each shared, there's something going on or happening, or there's a, we start making connections to bigger things out in the world what what it's so you're teaching and you are you're told to transition to going online at some point when did you start feeling or con or realizing or making connections or feeling like there's something off about this this is not i think the direction that we should be going uh to the transition to confinement and online learning and all of that, those changes in public education and including in other industries, you know, because this has affected a lot of industries, the service industry, it's affected the medical industry. Um, so I'm just curious if, if you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, long term, I think, like, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm pretty old school, like I'm kind of a dinosaur in, in the way that I do my classes, like I want students with their, you know, we do a lot of reading and a lot of writing in my classes. And so I like students to come in, if they're coming in for a workshop, they have their paper, they mark it up, they're exchanging it in their workshop group. Um, if they're reading something, I'm huge on physically annotating it. And that's not because I think, you know, technology is like evil or awful, you know, just by the nature of it being technology, but I mean, as an English teacher, I, I've witnessed the difference between students who read and try to critique or analyze or pick apart information in that format versus on a screen. And I've also seen like over the past eight years, you know, again, anecdotal, but I've seen the attention span of my students decrease, like just on, on average. Uh, they have a really hard time analyzing difficult information. Uh, and that's probably in part, you know, a product of 
the K through 12 education system. It's a product of them being on social media way, way beyond the point of what I would consider to be healthy. It's a problem of them being anxious or depressed or not sleeping or not having time, like you said, Andy. Um, but I mean, I also just think in general, like for what I teach, like I can't speak for other, other subjects and other fields, but you know, the average person, it is very difficult to dissect and, and digest complex information through a screen or through and certainly through like an iPad or a, or a phone, which is what a lot of students are using. Um, I mean, I, I have a hard time with it. Like if I'm writing, re reading a long, even just like a long news article that has complex information in it, I want to print it out. Um, so there's that. I mean, that's just kind of my, my experience and my understanding of you know, learning, um, learning patterns and, and different styles. The past year, I mean, I, is, did you want to, is that kind of what you meant, Eduardo, with the question, like, um, what made me question, like, more immediately in the past year? Yeah, what, or what made you get connected to us, connected to other communities, searching online, finding out what is happening here? There's something I'm not, sit, sit, it's not sitting well. I think this is beyond COVID. We believe COVID exists, like it's obvious it exists, but this is something beyond COVID. This is a, this isn't sitting well with me, how this transition in this, in the public, in public education, how the, it's, there are massive changes that possibly going to happen because of the future that we're going into with tech and ed. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was pretty questioning right from the beginning, um, exactly what enabled me to see at least to some extent what's happening where my, many of my colleagues and friends and family, you know, couldn't and don't seem to be able to, uh, I don't, I don't know. That's a question that I've asked myself a lot because I think, yeah, I think I'm a relatively intelligent person who can critically think, but I also don't think that I'm particularly special. Um, I will say, I think uh, sort of outside of my teaching to some extent related to my research, certainly in environmental humanities, coming from the world of environmental and animal rights activism, and then also paired with a sort of personal interest in holistic health and, um, you know, just kind of um, increasingly leaning toward uh, exiting from the allopathic sort of medical industrial complex world. Uh, those two things, I think, probably contributed heavily to, from the beginning, questioning, you know, is this is this really a, a public health crisis in the way that they are framing it? And I don't know. I mean, also just not, not, nobody seemed to have any discussions. Like nobody asked the teachers or the students for that matter, you know, what do you think? Do, you know, what are, what are the benefits? What are the costs? And I was kind of towing the line kind of like, okay, all right, let's, let's do this spring quarter, let's teach this online, maybe I'll learn a thing or two. Um, but when it started to drag on into the summer and then into the fall, 
I mean, at a certain point, you kind of have to stop and, and, and weigh what's happening. And especially, you know, having taught, you know, a, a number of classes by that point. And um, I mean, just like an example, this is the younger kids. So not, not necessarily my student population, but earlier this year in 2021, uh, the, the psychiatry and I think it's the psychiatry and behavioral unit at the children's hospital in my city, they ran out of beds in their overflow unit because they were having so many children admitted for attempted suicide, you know? And I mean, this is just one, one example, but it's like, at what point are we going to stop and at least have an open debate? Right? Like, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Like we've gotten to the point where we've pretty much made life unlivable, right. For the, the most vulnerable people which is children. And, and to me, that's just like, regardless of, of, you know, what, how many cases, however people see, you know, the public health crisis, like that's a level of collateral damage that I'm just not willing to accept. So then following that inner doubt about the public health crisis, you, you had an experience where you you said you you shared with us because we spoke with you before this right to, uh, maybe you can share with us that you had gone to some protest uh can you do you know what i'm referring to yeah like like last last year yeah <laughs> yeah um for sure yeah so i was getting really fed up and i think similar to you guys just geographically i live in uh, probably one of the most covid crazy parts of the country and world. I mean, there's just, it's, it's pretty much just across the board compliance. And I was getting really fed up. I was like, am I the only person in this entire city who, who has a couple of questions? And I was able to connect um, through one of the few friends I have that was kind of on the same page as me. And uh, yeah, I showed up at a, at a protest and was able to connect with uh, some other people in my area. And that was, I think, maybe August or September of 2020. And I've continued to, um, yeah, kind of build relationships with some of those people. And I, yeah, I mean, for, for the past, uh, since the fall, so, so going on like, you know, eight, 10 months, uh, I've been pretty active in that circle, you know, doing street actions, small scale protests, um, organizing in-person events, conversations, things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, the, the resistance, I guess, part, participating in the resistance to the extent that it exists where I am. Uh, and it's, it's been really, uh, it's been really amazing, actually. It's, it's obviously frustrating. We get a lot of uh, resistance and, and critique but we also get a surprising amount of support. And I think I had kind of shared with um, Andy, Andy and Eduardo when I, when I spoke to you before, you know, one of the things that is really, really apparent to me is just the class divide, like being out at any given protest and, and um, seeing like who, who supports, you know, who honks their horn driving by if you're standing there with a sign uh, and who comes up and, you know, it gives you the middle finger. It's pretty much like across the board, uh, 
class lines, right? Like the people who are honking their horns, coming up saying, thank you so much for being here. Like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. It's working class. It's the truck drivers. It's people driving, you know, plumbing vans, delivery truck drivers, or just people like driving kind of, you know, beat up cars, having a hard time. Maybe they've lost their job. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, they're having health issues or family members having health issues. And then the people who are, who get really upset and really like vocally critical are typically, you know, they're, they're kind of working class professionals who most likely, you know, have been, have been okay during this whole thing and they're collecting their salary and, you know, it's not to say they don't have problems, but it's not, it's not impacting them in the same way. And I think that's, uh, it's a little microcosm, but that's a, that's a big part of how I see this whole thing playing out. It really is a big, it's, a, it's an assault on the working class. Could you say, cause we had JP who was a teacher from uh, Southern California and he was like, he knew he was being lied to, but when we asked it, like, but the question was, I know this a lot that I was being lied to, but to find, to say what I really think is going on that he felt was harder. So you, you knew you were being lied to, what do you think is going on? How would you describe what you're resisting, who you're resisting, and what what's really in play here? I see a global techno-fascist biosecurity state being built at breakneck speed is kind of what, what I would sum it up to be. And in, in my school, like in, in the context of education specifically, what I see is teachers and educators like laying the bricks to build that digital prison and students too. I mean, students too, like we're all just kind of literally building our own cages. And, and that's what's been so frustrating is, is like teachers like literally begging to stay remote or to have more technology, you know, just, just as I see it, like digging the grave for our own profession, recording their lectures, throwing them up on Google, throwing them up on Instructure or um, Panopto. That, that's literally the name of the lecture capture that we use at my institution. It's called Panopto, as in Panopticon, like what world are we in? Um, and I think, I mean, that's like, that's what it is, right? It's like, it's, the true sort of uh, definition of control of a population, right, is to not only subjugate them, you know, or a, a class of people, but to actually convince them that they like it, right? To get them to experience that subjugation as empowerment or equity or comfort. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question, Andy? That's a... Yeah. <laughs> went off on teachers. Jeez. I, don't, I don't think I could do it that succinctly. That was damn good. But, okay, I do have a question. Then what were your resources for pulling this together? What, what, what were the key places you went to to find that out um, or, to, or to put that, that picture together? Because that's, that's very specific. I mean, I can tell you, like, the people that I read a lot or listen to are people like Allison McDowell, who I know you have had on regularly, people like Whitney Webb. Um, 
I mean, I can, yeah, I can tell you sort of like who I, who I read. James Corbett, I think has done phenomenal, like really, um, you know, very research-based, uh, well-documented work. I will say one of, one of the people that I think was pivotal for me, uh, who I'm sure you guys know her work, Corey Morningstar. So I read her coming from the world of like environmental activism and environmental humanities. I was pretty entrenched in the sort of nonprofit, uh, corporate captured environmental movement for some time. Um, and 2019, I read her series, the what's it called? Uh, manufacturing of Greta Thunberg, her, it's like a, a book length series, uh, which I recommend everybody read and you can get it as a book actually. And I recommend reading it in the book form as opposed to online if you can. Um, and I read that and it kind of rocked my world just within the sort of environmentalism, like ecology world. Um, and I think, you know, looking back, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how uh, quickly or how, yeah, how, how I would have been able to kind of put this together if not for that sort of um, experience. And just, you know, I felt in retrospect, I sort of dipped, dipped my toes into that kind of critique, um, even just within that sort of one sphere that now yeah, I mean, spring 2020 came along and I think, you know, it wasn't necessarily that I was like, oh, I read that and now I can see what's happening. But, you know, slowly you start to put the pieces together and you read other people and you listen to different dissenting voices. And then it's also been, I mean, when, once I was able to connect with other people in my area, I mean, that's been really valuable to me because I, what, I mean, like you guys, I, I, I was a leftist. I am a leftist. Um, but I really, you know, in retrospect, I, I'm realizing how sort of narrow the lane that I was in before really was. And so a lot of the people that I've connected with over the past year are not who I would expect to be hanging out with and certainly not doing activism with. Right. I mean, it's everyone from, yeah, there's some leftists, but it's, you know, there's conservatives, there's libertarians, there's people who voted for Trump, there's people who voted for Bernie, there's people who didn't vote at all. And I mean, there's, there's material differences between, you know, my beliefs and values and political, um, you know, persuasions and some of those people uh, that are, you know, they're, they're important differences, but like, man, we got it. We got to work together here. Uh, so it's been really humbling and uh, it's been a learning experience for me uh, to just kind of have conversations across across difference right which is like what getting back to academia like that's what I wanted to do in the first place is is have debates and you know myself question things and also have my opinions questioned right it's 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 been very humbling to be like oh wow okay yeah maybe I was wrong about a few things it's interesting because I I myself we, we live in San Francisco or now Andy lives in Oakland, but he lived here for many, many years. And, and there is a climate that I am sure is very similar to Seattle, right? And most of our doubts and questioning of, of any, any sort of lockdown confinement or anything around tech in ed and anything 
that is counter to the mainstream of these very liberal progressive uh, cities, it just, even in academia, I can just imagine, is just challenging to think alternatively. It's challenging to voice anything. I think more than half of my friends are on the liberal left on Facebook and anything I post, they have seen, but skip now and the other, I'm in the skipping zone, but before they used to just comment and comment. So they tell me, cause I seen it. I think I thought, well, not, not, now nothing is getting through. I don't think anybody's reading, but they tell, no, we deliberately skip you. And so, <laughs> and so I'm just wondering, how do you deal with that? <laughs> oh, I wish I, I wish I had a, a solution. I mean, yeah, it's, I've what is it like? What's your experience being, uh, you know, just against the grain or against the mainstream? And we, we're here on what's left. This is a leftist circle here. This is a certain community, but we question the very left. And a lot of people think we're uh, uplifting more right right right-wing voices or we're being conservative. I don't know what the, we know. People think we've fallen off the track, but what, so your experience. Everyone in my life thinks I've fallen off track. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. It's, it's really hard. I, I think it's, I mean, it's really easy to identify the propaganda that you disagree with. Right. It's much harder to identify propaganda or information that challenges your beliefs and I mean it's obviously it's come to a head during COVID because it's people are feeling it in such an embodied way like I've had arguments with family members and friends in terms of you know like who you vote for or how you see this political issue or not um but now it's like don't get near me right like you're a you're a biohazard, you're a walking biohazard. Um, so I think that, you know, it's just like everything, take everything up to 11, right? It's no longer like this sort of comfortable political discussion that you can have, or maybe it's not comfortable, but you can walk away from it, right? After the, the coffee date or the family Thanksgiving or whatnot. But I think, I mean, just in terms of the left, and I know this is, you know, like your, what's left, right? Like this is kind of, um, you know, a, a major question and frustration that you guys have been struggling with since, since pre-COVID. Um, like, I, I mean, I grew up post 9-11 era. The first protest I ever went to was to was protesting the Iraq war. And, you know, I've been, as I said, like act pretty active um, in my, you know, since my adult life in environmental activism, uh, animal rights activism. Um, but I've grown like I've grown really increasingly frustrated with, I guess, the mainstream left. Um, I remember being I turned 18 right as Obama was running for his first term. Like that was my first vote. And I remember feeling really hopeful. Right. And then the slow realization and sort of over years, a decade um, 
kind of like, yeah, the, the realization and, and horror of what's what actually happened, like what, what we do to other countries, like what, you know, and, and a lot of times it's coming from the left or it's, or it's bipartisan, right? Like, and, and what we do also to our own people, right? Like immigrants and the working poor. And then I think with Trump, I mean, certainly in academia, I mean, people just, just lost their mind. <laughs> like, really, that's how I feel like, yeah, he's awful. I mean, he's awful. But now it's in the, I guess, post-Trump era, right? Like the left has just completely lost the plot. Like I thought we were about uh, waging class struggle. I thought we were about fighting big pharma. I thought we were about opposing militarism, protecting the earth. But it seems like hardly anyone is fighting for that anymore. So I don't, I didn't answer your question. I don't know. I don't know what to do <laughs> with, uh, with the sort of frustrations people feel. I mean, it's, yeah, like it's, it's not comfortable to have your own sort of side critiqued, right? So yeah, I mean, of course, when, when as leftists, we critique the left, of course, it's going to be received by some people as like, oh, well, you're, hol you're holding up whatever, like right-wing views. And it's very bizarre. I mean, it's very bizarre to be like, I've been called a Trumpist for protesting lockdowns. Uh, but then, you know, there's right-wingers who go to these protests who call me a Marxist, like as an insult. It's very weird, right? The, the language has, has seen, sort of been, I don't know, sort of emptied of meaning. I'm actually curious about that what you just said about the language, the rhetoric, since that's kind of your training, um, you know, is there anything that, you know, that is particularly, you know, a highlight of how this narrative has been constructed, you know, in the public uh, sphere, you know, in the media and, and these narratives? I mean, I think, I think people could just start with reading Orwell, honestly. I mean, just so much of the language I mean, and what I consider to be propaganda, you know, the, the stay safe, um, safer at home, um, all of these kind of turns of phrase, right, which are being, they're being wielded and, and unfurled at, at such scale that it's really, I mean, that's, that's a huge red flag for me, right? Like when you see this coming, like it's across so, institutions, across states globally um that to me is is concerning and then you kind of place it in this larger framework of like some of the yeah some of the like critiques broad scale critiques of the left that i've just kind of brought up um and you think about um uh, you know department of defense it's not a department of defense it's a department of war mm. right um safer at home are we safer at home like i know andy you've talked about like this idea of well maybe not maybe that's not actually what safety is in the context of schooling um my my social worker friend um she she works in the school district and she just and even some of the our guests that we've had here have said that they don't like this phrase safer at home because there's so much that happens at home that isn't safe. I mean, for other reasons, right? That they're, they're talking more of the social, emotional and maybe abuse and this other stuff that it's so dismissive of 
people's experiences because not everyone, especially if we think about the global south, not everyone could just be at home. I mean, some people will die from starvation if they're not going out and working, right? I mean, it's a system that we live in as well. So there are many areas that we can look at this. Yeah, I mean, I think like, especially this just complete failure to expand our worldview beyond the US, beyond the West. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's a huge problem with our education system, with our the political conversations that we have. And I mean, yeah, it's exactly right what you just said, like these lockdowns. I mean, in other countries, like it's not, you, you know, you lose your job, you you know, whatever you, you, you're uncomfortable because you're in, you can't go outside. Like you die. Sometimes you die in these countries from lockdown. And I think, I don't know, no one seems to be willing to sort of wrestle with that reality. And and I want to just wanted to add that, you know, because that's kind of what I did during the pandemic is that that, that stuff also happens here, you know, in in the poorer communities, people did could not, People were criticized for still going out to work and, you know, and engaging in activities, you know, as if it was normal. But again, they couldn't afford to stay home for many reasons, like you mentioned before. So that doesn't just happen in other countries. It happens in a lot of the poor communities in this nation. And like you said, you know, that's why a lot of people, the working people, they were more frustrated. And like in my anecdotal experience here, the more educated people were the more you know, the ones more willing to shame others and, and you know, and ostracize for not uh, adhering to the, you know, what the, whatever the CDC said. Um, and so again, that, that my point is that that also happens here, you know, and it's just not visible to everyone. I had a student, the very first class I taught, so spring of 2020, um, and we're dealing with this whole question of like, do you make kids turn on their zoom camera or not right which i refuse to require it i mean i think most people i don't i haven't heard anyone like absolutely require it um but i had a student who she didn't have a desk in her home space right like she did not have a workspace <laughs> i mean and this may not even have been a case of like you know extreme she wasn't in extreme poverty or like some of the situations you're you're describing kenny right but even like something like that like she was tuning into to class from her bed and she felt the need to let me know why she wasn't turning on her camera because she didn't want to have her camera in her bed because it, it felt weird understandably so right so like even just you know stuff that people don't seem to think about right it's like yeah i mean not not everybody has the resources and the circumstances that are going to enable them to survive this this kind of lifestyle long term or even short term, um, let alone to you know try to actually thrive uh, during this time. Yeah, and and I'd I'd like to you know Kenny was probably the first one to put this say this thing about make a connection of like the more formally educated you are, the the more you buy into this narrative and the more you are like, like you said, not just helping build the prison, but you're fighting anyone who's trying to get out of it. Like you're saying, everyone get into it, you know? So, you know, and (laughs) you got your PhD and I got my PhD. So we are all way up here with the formal education. What, how do you make sense of that, of the, 
or first of all, I imagine you agree with that, but how, how do you make sense of particularly in the, in these halls that are supposed to be so, you know, critical thinking, uh, left, this is the, these left alcoves, these Marxist centers that colleges are talked about, you know, that the right is like terrified of it in some, in some ways. So how do you, how do you make sense of that? Seems to be a reality. I mean, I think it's in some sense a form of elitism, right? I mean, we are as like academics, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't make a very good living. Uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm struggling. Uh, I actually don't have a desk. Speaking <laughs> of I'm continuing to work at my, at my kitchen table, but I do think, um, I mean, we're, we're more comfortable, right? I mean, like if you go like Marxist critique, like we're the petite bourgeoisie. And so I think the idea of resistance, whatever that might look like, it's a little scary for a lot of us, right? It's going to be uncomfortable. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm, it depends on the day, sort of how pessimistic I am about the future. But when I think about, okay, well, what, what would it look like for us for the resistance to sort of um, take shape and like win, right. And, and build the sort of world that we want to build. And I, I think in order for that to happen, I mean, the system has to come down like in a really radical way, right? Like the sort of the empire has to fall type of a scenario, um, like burn it to the ground, you know, and that, that sounds radical. It's, I mean, what's the Virginia Woolf, right? Like what did she write, um, you know, about, um, burn the, burn the college to the ground. Right. And then the, the, the daughters and the, and the mothers like dance around the fire. And I think for a lot of us, like to throw a log onto that fire, so to speak is scary because we, we potentially might lose a lot of the things that have made us feel comfortable and made us feel successful and made us feel, yeah, sometimes like we're, we're better than, um, the working class or better than the Trump voters or whoever it may be. And so I think um, it's, there's a certain degree of like moral courage that I think has to be summoned. And I, I, I'm not sure how to sort of uh, foster that among even just like my little small circles. This uh, makes me think of, uh, so Michelle Alexander talks about the racial bribe. Uh, and this to me is like the professional bribe, you know, that, you know, some people are bribed with the status and, you know, this separation of uh, we are different than, you know, a certain class of, of the society. Even though, like you said, you know, some people are still struggling, you know, this still happens in the, like the restaurant industry where, where I am at, you know, where, people would rather take a title of manager, even though they're going to earn less money, you know, and, and struggle. Uh, but the status part, right, is it, the bribe that happens. At least that's one of my thoughts. I'm curious about, you know, your thoughts about the vaccine, Jessica. Um, and, and that is connected, right, as to what's happening like in your university, what's being required, because I know some kids, yeah. like one of the kids that we know, I don't want to say the name, that's going to Stanford, 
they are required to have a vaccine because they are going to have an open campus. So, so I, I'm kind of curious as to what is being required, you know, from your institution for students in terms of the vaccine. And also maybe if you can share what your thoughts are about the vaccine itself. So, I, I mean, I, I have no idea what's going to happen in the fall, but at, at least uh, the one thing I do know is that my university has announced that they are requiring vaccines. They've mandated it for both students and for staff, all staff, um, any, basically anybody who's uh, going to be on campus. Um, and supposedly exemptions are going to be offered. They have yet to disclose exactly what the protocol and, and process of obtaining one will be like and what will be required for those that are granted an exemption um, in terms of masking, distancing, reasonable accommodation, right, as the, the, the sort of legal term that I think we're, uh, we're kind of dancing around there. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty scary in terms of my own thoughts on the vaccines. I think, I mean, in my opinion, any sort of medical intervention, whether that's a PCR test, a vaccine, a mask, a cup of mineral water, uh, you know, a B12 supplement, I think it has to be up to the individual. Ultimately, I think it has to be administered with informed consent and it can't, it can't be coerced or forced. And I do see these mandates as coercion. Um, I mean, we're seeing so many different forms of incentivizing, right? Uh, and I, I find it really disturbing. I mean, I think it's so important with all of, with all of the public health uh, discussions and debates to keep coming back to the numbers, right? And I mean, we have to keep reminding people that the overall infection survival rate, even by, you know, the most allopathic, mainstream numbers, the overall infection survival rate is like 99.77, I think, percent across the board. And then for under 70 year olds, it's 99.95. And that was, those numbers are from the, the meta analysis, right? From earlier to uh, 2021, it was like, oh, I think it was about like 70 something different estimates from you know dozens and dozens of studies like 50 something places all over the world so for the for children k through 12 and then even for my students who are mostly like 18 to 22 and then teachers who are largely under 70 i mean they there is a greater chance of dying in a car wreck on the way to school than from covid at school um, and I'm not saying that that point, whatever, 0.05% of the population doesn't matter. Of course they matter, you know, but I, I think the other, the other piece that's not getting talked about is there are treatments, right? I mean, there's, there's both naturopathic and pharmaceutical treatments that have shown to be very, very low risk and very, very effective. Uh, you know, you have ivermectin, you have hydroxy with 
paired with zinc, you have uh, high dosage vitamin D, high, high dosage vitamin C, have um, nebulized uh, hydrogen peroxide. I mean, it's, there are options. And if those, I suppose, right, like if those options were um, being more, more uh, transparently talked about and offered, they'd have to pull the EUA, right? Um, and I think uh, for my students, it's they're, they're, the, the school has been really, really slick with their language in their announcements for the mandates. Uh, they keep referring to it as an FDA authorized vaccine, which is technically true, right? but it makes it sound as if it's had approval. Um, so, I mean, I, I find it really criminal that a lot of those treatments, particularly ivermectin, because it's, it just seems to be so incredibly effective, have been, um, you know, they, they, they're, people are either not being informed that they have options uh, if they do happen to get sick, if they are in that very, very, very small percentage of people who, who do get really sick. Um, so they're either not being informed or in some cases they're being denied access. I know there was that woman in, I think it was, uh, somewhere in the Midwest that even under a court order, they wouldn't give her, her family member ivermectin upon request. And instead it's like, we just continued to isolate, continued to vent people and then focused all of our money, all of our resources, all of our efforts on vaccinating and then demonizing anybody who even just says like, ah, I want to hold off for right now, for whatever reason, <laughs> you know, even if they're immunocompromised, even if they're um, whatever, whatever the reason is, right? I mean, that's a, that's a decision that should be up to the, up to the individual. Um, and then, it, I mean, this is kind of getting into, I don't know if you guys wanted to, to get into like the passport stuff, but it does not make sense to mandate a, a vaccine you know, based on trials that only tested for reduction of symptoms, right? They didn't test for, for transmission. So what is the point of a mandate? And then, you know, also what is the point of a, of a vaccine passport um, based on uh, science that, that's, that's largely irrelevant in terms of this sort of uh, what I consider to be a myth of, of the asymptomatic carrier, right? Like, like we're all just walking human biohazards. And how do you answer that question then? Like, well, what's the point? So how, what do you see as the point between the push to essentially vaccinate an age group, which is 0. 0.00, I don't know if I get the zero, 0.0004% chance of dying, I think for zero to 20. Um, and that, like you said, those are CDC numbers. This isn't, you know, this is like using their stuff. How, what do you understand as the point for um, getting essentially everyone vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, it's shots in arms, right? Like that's the way they're talking about it is like, we just got to get shots in arms. Um, to me, I mean, I just think it's completely ridiculous to think that these institutions and corporations and governments care about people's health. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I, I mean, in terms of what they're trying to accomplish with this push toward quote unquote herd immunity, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know for sure. I do think that particularly the mRNA vaccines, I think, I mean, I, I am scared of the product itself. I, based on what I 
you know, what research I have done, I, I absolutely think it is a dangerous product in and of itself, but I also think it's, it's one very um, specific tool in terms of this larger, like we're talking about the, the larger sort of structure of a biosecurity state. Uh, I mean, it's a platform, right? And I think if people think like, oh, I'll just get this one vaccine, I'll, maybe I'll risk it. Um, I think they're kidding themselves. I mean, I think this is, this is a platform that's gonna be extending far, far into the future um, in terms of things like digital passports. Uh, I mean, they're already talking about booster shots. Uh, these databases that are being created, whether it's by governments or like employers, right? Employers being encouraged to keep a database of people's vaccination records. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the schools, right? They're going to have a list. Um, so I think it's, it's scary in and of itself, but I think the sort of long-term implications of these, um, yeah, like uh, sort of uh, industrialized, uh, digital platforms, gene therapies, that's what really scares me in the long term beyond sort of the immediate question of like, will they give me an exemption, which is also a, a legitimate question. Yeah. I mean, I think that like when Allison and other people who talk about blockchain being put into here, you, that, 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 New, that paper that your students submitted is on the same is on that same blockchain dashboard for them as their PCR test that they took as the wages that they make, what job that they did, as when they logged on and when they logged off of, of anything of everything, essentially, um, essentially anything they've done as well as their vaccine. So that is where all these things will, will I do believe are going to come together. It's going to every piece of, of information about us is going to be known. Uh, not just by myself, um, but by by the government, by corporations. Um, I was thinking maybe this is a point where we talk about like solutions or you know responses to what you, what you see happening. How do we fight back? What what are some of your thoughts? You know, maybe within your your own network, uh, your workplace, your community. Um, any thoughts on that? I, I mean, I, unfortunately, I don't even think the question is how, not yet anyway, in, at least in my, in my um, region, I guess. I mean, right now, based on what I'm seeing among my colleagues, they, I mean, they, they won't fight or push back at all, like, let alone, like, how, like, in the way that I want. Uh, but it seems to me, especially in terms of education, I, I do think we kind of have like a very small window here um, where teachers are not entirely disposable or replaceable right now. Um, you know, the, the LMSs and the digitized learning platforms and the AI, like it's not there yet, which means we have power if we want to take it. Um, I think that most of the sort of like proposed solutions to like problems in the world, you know, whether it's like capitalism, you know, climate change, poverty, like the, the, the solutions that were being sold uh, are market-based solutions coming from the very centers of power that created 
the mess, right? And it's, I mean, this is like so often kind of what it comes back to for me is like, you know, what, how is big pharma going to get us out of a health crisis? How are capitalists and imperialists like, why would we trust them to, to solve the problems that are caused by capitalism and imperialism? So I think in terms of solutions, like, I don't know. I just know we need to reject those manufactured false solutions outright. And I think we need to start defining the parameters of the discussion ourselves, like you guys are doing here on this podcast, right? Like, we get to define that stuff. Um, and then in terms of like, how do we resist? I think I, I don't have like a, like a good, like a good solution. I mean, my little tiny group here in Seattle, like we worked our ass off just to get like 300 people out at a protest. Um, it's an uphill battle in some regions, but I think resist in any way you can, you know, I mean, and, and certainly, talking to each other, I think is, is like a good kind of place to start, like just getting out into the world and preferably in person, yeah. uh, like talk to people who are like-minded, talk to people who um, you think might listen, but also like talk to people who maybe you think you disagree with, and maybe you do disagree with uh, that. I mean, like I kind of said before, like that's one thing I've learned the past year is that I have a lot more in common with other um people in my community, like whether, whatever their political persuasion, we have a lot more in common with each other than we do with, you know, our uh, overlords, right? The, the, the ruling class and, and a lot more power than they would have us believe, at least at this point. Um, so I think a lot of it, yeah, I mean, we, we want the same things, right? Like a lot of us want the same things. We want health, we want happiness and, and freedom for ourselves and our, our families and our communities. And so we're going to have to work together. I think um, as a teacher, like my top priority is this kind of the same as it's always been, which is to foster critical thinking in my students is to teach them how to think, not what to think. Um, there's a really great line in, uh, in Nabokov where he says, uh, curiosity is curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. So I think that's like such a great crystal, like we all need to be more curious and, and thereby more insubordinate in whatever ways that we can. Mm -hmm. Next, in about a month from now, I wanna to put together for what's left a teacher panel about reopening schools. Like, what are we gonna do? We, we may know a little bit more about what's coming at that point, but and I, I definitely thought about you as being a person on that. It's mostly going to be more K through 12, but I think to have you there as well would be good. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts because I know you said, hey, I'm not against tech. You know, you said that. And I've been talking to some teachers. And I feel like we have, we have to start saying we are against tech. I, I do feel like part of me now has to, we have to, to go towards what the old Luddites of old, you know, who basically said, we're tearing this thing apart. We're taking it out. Um, we're uprooting it um, now. And that's what I would, if, if teachers were on board, that's what I would say we would need to do is like, we would literally begin to break up that physical infrastructure because this world, is, the prison is being built through tech. So we, it's part of the prison, not the whole, but part of it is being built through that. So I, I would say that, um, I guess, what would, what do you make of that? Like, uh, that's maybe a question I have, you know, kind of loading the dice for myself because I, I am increasingly coming of the mind that we who have been, 
played footsie with tech and but have been i also have been kind of reluctant like i don't think you learn that well with it but now i feel like i have to make a, a break uh and an and open break in my in my schools and in in my classes and speak of it as something as opposition to the world that's being constructed i think that's fair i, I mean I, yeah i i said i'm not against tech just sort of like inherently by the nature of it being tech but I, I agree with you. And I think there is a weird, it kind of comes back to this, that, that idea of like defining the parameters of the discussion, like this idea that systems or platforms are like inherently neutral, right? Which is not true. Like, it's just not true. Um, particularly when they're owned by <laughs> corporate institutions, you know, I mean, like at, at my institution, right? Like, all of the all of the servers they're amazon servers right like they're housed by one of the largest most evil corporations which the left is so quick to critique in other contexts right um and i just think you know if we can't call call that out for what it is um i don't i don't i don't know what we're doing as teachers um I mean, we're, we're allowing them to, to commodify our students even more. I mean, they've, they've already been doing it, but it, yeah, I mean, I, I give a, I give a talk to like, I don't know, like six people at my institution and, and it was just called like students are not data commodity. My students are not data commodities, you know, and a um, hat tip there to, to Allison and her work. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Like, it's it's not welcome in my classroom. It never has been, but now it's it's just more important than ever. I think we're all going to become Levites. I know. I, I want to read about those folks. I, I feel like I... We I, should, because I think they didn't necessarily oppose the factory movement or the machinery. It was more so that they saw that they didn't have... It. They didn't they didn't have any say or they didn't have any voice in it. And so they decided then, you know what, forget it. Let's just break into this and let's just destroy it because it's not about just taking our jobs. It's that we have no say, we have no agency over this. No? So I think right, and, and I mean, like such a, yeah, like not to keep on Amazon specifically, but they deserve it. I mean, you have like in my state, Amazon donating laptops and tablets for remote learning which I, yeah, I think is going on all over the country. And it's- Here it's Google. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, yeah. Probably Google here too. Um, I mean, it's just like, like what, are, what are people thinking? Like, do they really believe that these corporations are philanthropic in any way, shape or form? Like these are union busters. These are profit, greedy centers of power. I mean, like Amazon thinks it's it's acceptable, right, for workers to piss into bottles because apparently like bathroom breaks would be too damaging to their bottom line, right? But now all of a sudden they care about public health and they care about the well-being of our children. Like it's patently ridiculous. Um, and same thing, I mean, my my institution, you know, they they torture live animals without any anesthetic for research purposes. They continue to use prison labor. Uh, they, they do not care about the vulnerable. They do not care about black people, public health, 
equity, they care about money. Um, and now, you know, and yeah, like coming back to the vaccines, now they want to make a public education conditional upon you taking an experimental pharmaceutical product for a virus with almost 100% recovery rate. I mean, that is, that is, that is sickness in the mind to, yeah. to me. Like that's real. You're going to get this episode shut down. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> you can cut anything you want. We're not cutting no. that. We're keeping all the stuff that's going to give us a community strike. I love it. Okay. Um, it's like, shut down, shut down. We already had three strikes. <laughs> um, Eduardo, we asked the question about, I, the last one about Jessica's book. Yeah. Where do you think yeah. you fall, like, on the political spectrum? Of how, how would you, or ideology, how do you think that you would identify yourself? I mean... Mm-hmm. Sure. I would say, I would say I'm a fervent anti-capitalist, if that's not clear. Uh, I think now more than ever, like industrial capitalism, it's, it's destroying the earth. It won't stop. It's not going to stop right until every inch of the planet has been uh, commodified and financialized and exploited um, and probably space too, right? Um, And I think looking around, like, I know this is kind of a, like a socialist podcast to some extent. I think the class analysis is, is missing. I mean, it is completely absent right now. I'm not a Marxist, but I, I think that analysis and that critique of capitalism that Marx provides uh, is it's second to none. Uh, and I think maybe, maybe paired with a little bit of like Sylvia Frederici, um, you know, as a woman, I kind of can't, I can't leave that aspect of it out, but I think Who's that cause I don't know that person so well. Oh yeah. I mean, she, so she writes, um, mostly about, um, labor from the frame of sort of like the history of women's reproduction. Um, and I think, I mean, so few people are, I was going to say so few people are reading Marx or certainly Federici, um, but so few people are reading anything. Uh, which gets us back to education and like why I became an English teacher in the, in the first place. Um, but uh, yeah, so to answer your question, I think my, I mean, I'm leaning more toward kind of an anarchist persuasion these days, I guess you could say green anarchism, because for me, the earth, the animals, ecosystems, ecology, like that is, that's everything. Like that's what it is to be, at home in the world uh, as human animals. And I mean, I'm also, I'm, a, I'm also a, a radical feminist, which is another analysis that I think has kind of been smeared and stamped out of education almost completely. Like it's almost a dirty word in academia right now. And to me, it's, it's pretty plain to see that what's happening right now is not only a result of years of industrial capitalism, but it's also patriarchy, right? Like assaults on, uh, assaults on and attempts to control uh, reproduction, birth, labor, women's bodies, women's power, really. And, and, and I think we have to take that back. Like we got, we got to take it back fast. Well, I really appreciate you sharing all this stuff, Jessica. You said some, I mean, some of this stuff was like I really could relate. I don't know if it's because you're, you're watching too many episodes of what's left, but I was just like, I was like, totally like, yeah, I would, that's how I would say it. 
So I, That's I, a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I was, so I really appreciate you taking the time to share your stuff with us. Thanks for yeah, having us. I really appreciate the conversation and all of the work that all three of you are doing. <laughs> I also want to say that I think the, the, the group, are you continuing to work with that group that you did the demonstrations with? You all still kind of get together? I yeah, absolutely. That's what everyone needs to be doing is kind of finding, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be doing a protest together, but finding right now it's finding the group that's willing to meet in person. That's willing to like talk about this stuff. Um, I do think that's where, what everyone who is trying to figure out what to do uh, needs to be kind of becoming a little bit of a node of association of human association. You know, earlier you said um, something about, uh, you know, being in a lane. And, you know, I think that what you're doing, uh, it's what we need to be doing, actually. Get out of your lane, you know, explore and, you know, and explore terrain of, ide terrain of ideas, debates, and, you know, expose your ideas, really. Otherwise, you know, find yourself in some gang mentality. And mm -hmm. you know, that's where we're at right now. Do you think there's anything else we have to... Wait, you went to add Jessica? No, oh, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure we could go for hours more. <laughs> but I think <laughs> yeah. that, it seems like a natural stopping point. All right. <clears throat> Here we are. That does it for this week's episode. Um, and Dr. Jessica teaches English literature, writing, and environmental humanities at the university level in Washington State. She has been teaching college students for eight years and holds a PhD in English. She is also an active member of environmental and animal, animal rights activist communities. Um, and we'll link information or anything you want to share with us on the episode notes, um, Jessica. Uh, What's Left is a weekly political podcast slash channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes where we found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.webnote.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please share your favorite episodes, rate, review, subscribe, turn on your notifications uh, to any of our um, platforms on podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or BitChute, Libri, L-B-R-Y, Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, -E, or YouTube and Telegram. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-hosts Kenny Cepeda and Andy Lipsum. Thank you very much for being here, Dr. Jessica. <laughs> all right. See you all next time.